I want to begin, as I did a couple weeks ago with the Sermon on the Mount series, where we began with the end. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin with the end this morning as well, before I lose anyone, right, before you fall asleep. Uh, I want to begin by saying my fond temporary farewell, uh, as you already know. I leave tonight uh, for a month of sabbatical study and reflection and prayer that... My prayer is we'll bear very sweet kingdom fruit for us as we labor side by side for the gospel for many years to come. And I am very thankful to you all for this opportunity to step away and visit with our our mission partners in Southeast Asia. And uh, I just got to give a funny on the side this morning. I got promotional material for the the course I'm teaching at the seminary and in the fashion that those who know will know, right? Other than the part where the dates change, the times change, and the topics change, (laughs) it looks great. So uh, I don't feel nearly as bad about being behind on getting prepared as I was feeling before I found out I was teaching something somewhat different. But... um, I'm excited to, you know, the real reason I'm going, the, the deepest reason I'm going is to just observe their discipleship practices for, for multiplying churches in a, in a country that is primarily not Christian and doesn't have a, a strong legacy of Christianity because you have to work differently and because I believe that's kind of where we are culturally as church in America and where we're headed uh, is requiring to be able to do some things a little bit differently, a little bit more creatively. So I really want to see in action the things that I have read about and heard about there. And of course, as you know, I'll probably wind up doing some preaching and teaching and evangelism. What I want to assure you is that LRBC is in excellent hands while I'm away, God's and yours. And, uh, On Sunday mornings, you're going to hear from our counselor, Daniel Rodriguez. You're going to hear from pastors Joe and Neil. Uh, Saturday nights, you'll hear from uh, Joe and Michael bringing the word. On Wednesday nights, Niall Radcliffe is back from his time in South Asia, so he will be able to resume the study that I was subbing for on respectable sins. Uh, Now, I won't be monitoring email or phones while I'm away, and as I was discussing with John earlier, I'm going to turn off the doorbell so it doesn't ring over time somebody comes to pick their child up from MDO, which happened to me in Israel. It was always at dinner time. It's ringing constantly um, while I'm in the whole, you know, seven hours offset. Here, I'm 12 hours offset. I really don't want it ringing at 12, you know, midnight. Uh, but if you contact the office, you will be able to get connected with Pastor Neil or Pastor Stephen or the appropriate pastor, leader, or deacon who can assist you with anything you may need. And I'm very confident that our ministries are going to move forward with our shared mission and vision because we know why we're here and what we're here to do. We are here to make disciples as a lighthouse for Jesus Christ at the corner of Clipper and Mariner. And we just have such outstanding leadership all throughout this church. I cannot wait to hear your stories on the other side of this, of how God moved in and through you in this next month uh, while I'm away. Now, certainly I'm going to be praying for you, and uh, I'm going to be missing you, but I'm looking forward to when we're back together again, because we've got a lot of disciple-making to do. You might have noticed. Um, so, having said that part, please don't leave just because I said farewell at the beginning. Not your excuse to leave, right? we still got a whole sermon, and we got 
our awesome chili cook-off, right? Fire in the belly, chili cook-off. So after worship, please just head straight over to the fellowship hall and start sampling chilies and voting for your favorites. We'll, we'll move the event along and, and give the awards. You'll get the chance to taste good stuff and, and debate the who should win. Then you're going to get the awards. But remember, the, the real fire in the belly isn't the pain you're going to experience if you try Neil's. Right? It's about the excitement of getting connected with a new area of kingdom service that gets you fired up to serve the Lord this year. So whether you've been serving in places for lots of years and maybe you feel like it's time for a change uh, or maybe you haven't yet really dove into service uh, in different ways, right? this is a chance to get connected, to talk to leaders, and to, to just get on uh, God's path for the year. So uh, as you know, an essential part of Christian growth and, and thriving and, and joy is serving Christ's kingdom here on earth. And so our goal for everyone at, at LRC is to, to know and do God's will for your life uh, because Scripture promises that God has prepared good works for you to do. And so our goal including little events like Fire in the Belly, is to help you and everyone around you discover what those good works are that he's made for you. So remember, after the awards, even if you're sad and your heart is broken, come back over to the uh, rooms under the sanctuary and the worship center and explore the ministries of the church, talk with their leaders about ways to, that you can grow and thrive and serve God through this lighthouse for Christ. And now let us continue with the Sermon on the Mount. And today we are starting a focus on holiness. And this is a topic that is going to be explored in several sermons in the weeks to come. Uh, what holiness looks like and how that relates to Scripture, Old Testament and New. Our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Oh, that was my farewell slide. I forgot to put my farewell slide up. That's me this afternoon. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is a really tough teaching. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were the best rule followers ever. Everybody knew they were super righteous. And so I believe it, this verse is probably the most important key to understanding how we as Christians are to live in light of the Sermon on the Mount. And so I pray that, that you will come to agree with me uh, over the course of this message. 
that there is only one way for your righteousness to reach that impossible level. And that is by God's grace, given through faith in Jesus Christ. And that that carries with it a responsibility to then seriously pursue holiness every single day. So I summarize by saying, as the beneficiary of grace and righteousness, be holy. And we're going to think through this passage, and it's a tough passage from an interpretive perspective. We're going to think through this passage through three principles. First, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, Jesus calls you to extreme righteousness. Jesus tells us in verse 17 that he is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now that phrase, the law or the prophets, is a way of Jesus referring to the entire Old Testament scripture from Genesis to Malachi in our Christian Bibles. Hebrew Bible is organized slightly different, but it's all the same scriptures. The first five books are often collectively referred to as the law because they contain the Ten Commandments and the 613 laws given by God to Moses. And the remaining books of history, prophecy, and wisdom are all inspired by the Holy Spirit and were written by prophets through whom God spoke to the world. Hence, the law and the prophets as a phrase to describe all of Old Testament Scripture. Jesus says what he says because he is very well aware that what he is speaking in this Sermon on the Mount is new and authoritative words of Scripture. The passages that are going to get unpacked over the next few weeks all start, they have a common structure. They all begin with a statement that's essentially saying, you know you've heard the Ten Commandments, but I'm telling you something even more strict. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is raising the bar on long-established Old Testament Scripture. And so then the obvious question for anyone then or today would be, so what is the relationship between Jesus and his teaching, his commandments, and the Old Testament, right? Does it just mean we don't need to worry about the Old Testament anymore? It doesn't really matter because Jesus is here? And the answer he gives is that he's not here to toss the Old Testament in the trash can. Instead, he came to perfectly fulfill all of it. His life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and eventual return fulfill the promises of the prophets. In his perfect sinless life, Jesus fulfills the righteous requirements of the entire Mosaic law. By his sacrificial death on the cross to pay for our sins, Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice to which the entire complex, bloody system of sacrifices pointed. And to be clear, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament perfectly because we can't. We can't do it. None of us can fulfill all of the rules and laws of the Old Testament and do it with the proper heart demanded by a holy God. 
but Jesus did. We all rebel in one way or another against God's authority over creation and our lives. We think we know best. We do what we want to do. And that rebellion is called sin. But Jesus submitted perfectly to his Father's will. He never sinned. Our sin separates us from our holy creator God, but Christ's sinless sacrifice brings us back together with him when we put our faith in him. But the penalty for sin is death, as the Old Testament makes abundantly clear. Jesus paid that penalty for all of us through his own death on the cross so that we won't ever have to. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose from the dead, appearing to hundreds of witnesses over a period of 40 days before going up to heaven in front of them. And because he did, everyone who believes in him is completely forgiven for their sins, and guilt and shame are, are wiped away, and a relationship with God is beautifully restored. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment, for example, of Isaiah 53, 5, and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus continues in verses 18 and 19, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, right? An iota is just a, a little stroke of the pen. A dot is just a dot, right? The smallest bit will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And we struggle with these two verses as Christians who are not also Jewish. Because we are, let's be clear, not under the Mosaic law. And Jesus isn't saying here that we should or need to follow the Mosaic law, but rather what he's saying is that the Old Testament as a whole stands and will continue to stand as a testimony to God's perfect holiness and the high standards for those created in his image. It testifies to the, the awfulness of sin that quite honestly we don't understand very well, even as Christians. The awfulness of sin that is so bad, right, to, to rebel against the creator of the universe that it can only be washed away by the blood of an innocent creature. It vividly portrays what it is to be a people devoted and set apart to God. Now, Jesus says these words a few years before he goes to the cross to establish the new covenant of grace in his blood. And as non-Jewish Christians living under that new covenant of grace rather than the Mosaic law, we are not bound by that law, but that does not invalidate the law. The preaching of, the, of Peter, the ruling of the Jerusalem Council, the writing of Paul, all makes it abundantly clear that we as non-Jewish Christians are not bound by the law. For example, Acts 15, 28 to 29, records the instructions from the church in Jerusalem to the non-Jewish Christians in Antioch. 
who are being pressured to become Jewish and follow the law. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Despite this, make no mistake, Jesus doesn't invalidate the law. He perfectly fulfills it in his life, death, and resurrection. He promises the Old Testament will stand until all is accomplished and heaven and earth is renewed at his return. Which is not saying that we're bound by those 613 rules. Rather, the Old Testament stands so that we'll understand God's unchanging plan of salvation and how he unfolded it across thousands of years from Genesis to Revelation to bring about our redemption and salvation. We see, that through, see all that through what the prophets prophesied about Jesus and about how the animal sacrifices foreshadowed his once-for-all sacrifice. And the way the key figures like jo- Joseph and, and Moses and Aaron and King David each give us a, a partial preview, pointing us to the, the perfection of Jesus the Christ, our Lord and Savior. And then Jesus calls his followers, including you and me, to an extremely high level of righteousness, one that will be explored in the verses that that are unpacked in the weeks ahead. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, while we're used to thinking of Pharisees as cartoonish villains in in New Testament stories, the, the reality is the scribes and Pharisees were literally the most holy, observant people that Jesus' original audience could have ever imagined. And so for him to say that ordinary folks like you and me needed to be more righteous than they were in order to get into God's kingdom was both mind-blowing and utterly discouraging. His hearers would have struggled to make sense how to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, right? We, in our relative cultural ignorance, are like, yeah, they're always these bad dudes, so it's easy to be more righteous than them. No, no. It was unimaginable to be more righteous than them in people's eyes. But here's the thing, right? What Jesus knew and was going to be highlighting in in subsequent verses and in so many of the confrontations in the years that were ahead of him before the cross is that their righteousness was only skin deep. (laughs) They looked great in outward appearance and public behavior. But their hearts were often corrupt, prideful, contemptuous, cynical, and seeking the applause of others, not unlike, unfortunately, many Christians today. We can be the same. And so the message remains just as relevant for us. Jesus is about to say throughout the sermon in many different ways that true holiness and righteousness aren't about rule following and visible behavior, but they're about experiencing deep heart change and having the proper attitude behind literally everything we ever say or do. When faced with verse 20, both his original audience and we today should understand it the same way. And we should all be crying out, this is impossible. 
how then could we ever possibly get into God's kingdom? That despair leads us to our second principle. Such righteousness is only possible through grace. <clears throat> when you hear, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, your response really should be to say, what do I possibly do with this, Jesus? There are 613 laws in the Mosaic law. 613! Right? Most of us have trouble like following a few rules in a day. The Pharisees and scribes were way better at following these rules than anybody else, either then or now. And yet Jesus said they weren't anywhere near good enough for his kingdom. Verse 20 should force us to confront the hard truth about ourselves, that it is impossible for anyone to be righteous enough to get into God's kingdom on their own. That we have no hope of working, earning, giving, abstaining, helping, or disciplining ourselves into a relationship with the holy creator of the universe. And that realization is the definition of spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That realization is the key to making sense of the entire Sermon on the Mount and, and living as a follower of Jesus in light of it, right? The realization that we have nothing to persuade a perfect God to let us into his perfect heaven. This is why spiritual poverty is essential for anyone to come to be willing to be saved because we have to admit that we need a Savior, we have to admit that, that we need grace, which is defined as, as undeserved, unearned favor, because we can't ever deserve it and earn it. We don't have enough righteousness on our own to get into God's kingdom. We need the righteousness of someone else to be credited to our account instead of trying to get there on our own righteousness. And this is the good news, because this is exactly what God does for us through Jesus Christ, because he is loving and merciful and gracious. As he does not leave us wallowing in the despair of verse 20. He gives us hope and a righteousness that does not belong to us. Romans 8, 3 and 4 explains, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. <coughs> when you believe and trust in Jesus as your resurrected Lord and Savior, who perfectly fulfilled all the righteousness under the law, right? This is what he says, I've come to fulfill it. When you believe that he came to fulfill it, that he is the Son of God who was crucified for your sins and rose from the dead, then God credits his perfect righteousness to you. 
This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 celebrates. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? Let's, let's personalize this a bit. For, for your sake, God made Jesus to be sin, carrying all of your sins on himself on the cross, so that in Christ you become perfectly righteous in God's eyes. That's a good deal. And it happens to be the only way for your righteousness to ever exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees by being credited with the righteousness that doesn't belong to you, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Only he has righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees in perfection. And this is what Jesus came to fulfill the law and prophets to make possible. And so the Old Testament stands and reminds us and teaches us and convicts us of our absolute dependence on God's grace to be saved. It stands to tell us that we cannot be saved by doing good deeds and saying good words or thinking good thoughts. We can only be saved by God's grace, that, that gift he offers through faith in his Son. The gift that we will never, ever earn or deserve. So let's stop fooling ourselves and trying to think that we are earning it and deserving it. Let us just be thankful. But my friends, my brothers and sisters, there are profound implications once we have accepted that gift of grace and have been credited with a righteousness that doesn't belong to us. And that is the final principle today, which will be explored in the weeks to come. Because you have Christ's righteousness, pursue his holiness. Because you have Christ's righteousness, pursue his holiness. We are wonderfully, thankfully saved, only by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. But once you and I have been saved by that grace and, and have become a new creation in Christ, right? Recognize that, that we are commanded to, to live by grace in light of that grace and to do so by pursuing genuine holiness. We're called and commanded to live and pursue the righteousness we've already been credited with and the perfect holiness of our Savior. Right? Here's good news, right? We, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, right, for all who have been, our hearts are transformed by God's grace, and we are sealed by God's Holy Spirit, and we will not be rejected by him. We are in union with God's Son. And so, while we do not enter the kingdom by our own righteousness, we are called to live a kingdom life that increasingly reflects Christ's righteousness. Because he is in us, and we are in him. The reality is, and again, you'll see it clearly in weeks to come, Jesus teaches much higher standards than the Ten Commandments. And he's completely serious about it. He is completely serious about his followers living up to those standards. Right? But he doesn't do that in a mean way, in a harsh way, in a cruel way, but rather in the encouraging way of, of any parent or leader exhorting 
their children or those who follow to a higher level and empowering them to do it at the same time. That's the beauty of it. Right here we are early in Matthew's gospel with this call to be righteous. We need to recognize that Matthew's gospel concludes with what? The Great Commission. Right? The very last words of which teach us, right? Command us to teach disciples to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus cares about our obedience. He cares about our pursuit of holiness. This is why I think he says, right? Anybody who relaxes the least of these commandments, you know, is the least in the kingdom of heaven, right? He's still talking about people who are saved by God's grace through faith in him, right? But he's saying, don't be relaxing what I'm commanding you to do. Don't lighten or excuse away the things I literally am telling you to do. Now, to be clear, we don't obey Christ's commandments and pursue personal holiness to save ourselves, but we, we must be doing this because we have been saved. We must not relax any of his commandments, as verse 19 says, right? Recognizing that higher standard that Jesus holds us to as his beloved friends. And unfortunately, as I shared at the beginning of this series, Christians are often very quick to dismiss Christ's expectations on the Sermon on the Mount. Ah, he couldn't possibly mean that. He means it. There's grace when we fail, but he means it. When we dismiss Christ's commands, when we excuse away the Sermon on the Mount, what are we doing, right? We are relaxing the commandments he gave. He doesn't reject us for that. We're still in the kingdom of heaven. But it's a terrible error that keeps us from experiencing many of the greatest joys and blessings of living in the kingdom here on earth. See, following the, the commands of Jesus isn't just like some hard, you know, boring, no fun burden, right? This is how we enjoy our new life in Christ to the fullest. We live in his will, in the power of his spirit. And so you and I must seriously pursue holiness in every aspect of our lives. What we do, watch, read, say, and surf. How we spend, work, and relax. Seriously pursue holiness knowing that there's always grace when you fall short. As 1 John 1, 9 promises, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us seriously pursue holiness knowing that while you and I can't achieve it on our own, the power of Christ's spirit in us will help us to grow and change and be transformed, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 celebrates. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. Right? We are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so as we close today, let us commit to seriously pursue holiness, both publicly and privately, loving and serving one another, making disciples and following Jesus wherever he leads.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the stark truth of Jesus. That we can never enter your presence on our own merit because we just simply cannot be perfect, and you are. Lord, thank you that Jesus came to fulfill everything the Old Testament spoke of and promised and to do it perfectly so that he could stand in our stead on the cross and they did so willingly, dying and rising from death so that our sins could be paid for and that we could enjoy new life through faith in him. Lord God, thank you for this grace that we just absolutely don't deserve. Thank you for this righteousness that is not ours, but that you look at us with in love because of Jesus. Lord, continue to heal our our dark and broken souls. Transform us and change us. Help us to all live in light of this grace and pursue the holiness that Jesus died to make possible. Lord, help us individually and as a church to truly follow Jesus with all that that includes and entails. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.